Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Victoria Phillips, and I am here to speak about Stalin's Millennials, Nostalgia, Trauma, and Nationalism. And we welcome Tinnaton to the program. And Tinnaton, can you tell us about the book and how, how did it come about? First of all, thank you so much for having me, Victoria. It's it's fantastic to be here, even though we're virtual, but nonetheless. Um, the, the book about Stalin's millennials was actually something that I was researching without even realizing that I was researching during the time that I was a student at Columbia University. And for those who don't know, I had the privilege of being your student. And um, among one of the many, many things that being your student taught me was the art of archival research, which is something that um, not a lot of historians like to do, let alone those who are not historians, such as myself. And I was able to just dabble in, in that territory that was otherwise completely unknown to me. And I realized that um, with the help of archival material, as well as oral histories, paired with some of the, the personal stories from my family and the the research component um, on the ground in, in Georgia and in Russia, that perhaps I could start thinking about some of the topics that had been on my mind for many years about why I, as a student who was not necessarily a history student, but rather a student of Russian regional studies, was so very interested in looking at a history of of my country, of Georgia, and a country that became my adopted home when I was little, that was Russia. Um, but at this point, as a U.S. citizen um, who had had a career in music, who was suddenly uh, becoming so interested in political science and history and international relations, at what point could one makes sense of why is she so interested in thinking about Stalin in her 30s? And not a lot of my peers, not a lot of millennials are staying up all night worrying about what does Stalin's popularity really mean? But that was one of the questions that kept me up for for many, many nights. And um, over the years when I was a student, both as, as a bachelor student, as well as a master's student, I had the opportunity through some fantastic funding um, opportunities, including Seawar Institute, as well as the Harriman Institute, where I received my master's degree, to travel, to go into the region, uh, to look at the archives, um, to also talk to people and learn the craft of, of oral history and, and learn to talk to those people. Because I was talking to people who were very much part of a history that is still very much alive in our living memory that one could argue that we are still living through history to this very day with everything that is happening, the tragic events in Ukraine and the Eurasian region as a whole. So I think in a nutshell, this this book really wasn't a book project for me up until I actually started writing it. It was a personal project. It was a personal journey. I was trying to understand what drew me to these topics that one 
could argue should have been something that my family had left behind with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But but here we are today, and I'm I'm so very thrilled that something very personal became something that I could also put in a book that could be tangible and hopefully other people will be able to read it. And perhaps if I'm lucky, um, other Stalins, millennials, will also be able to recognize some of the emotions that that I tried to put into this book that are not just professional and historical, but also very highly and intensely personal. Um, And other aspects that they will disagree with. And I would be thrilled to hear what they disagree with, because I think that would that would actually make for an interesting conversation for us to have. Um, so digging into the personal um, and the political, um, I was fascinated by your story of your great aunt, Nina. Um, can you um, tell our listeners um, about her and about how she brought you into the project? It was a topic that my family, not unlike many Soviet and even post-Soviet families back in the day, were very uncomfortable to talk about. So I knew very little about Nina, which I think was one of the reasons why I had that hunger and thirst to learn about her because it was a topic that was unofficially forbidden around the dining table. Um, It was something that even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, even though I was still very young, every time I brought it up, my grandmother would get very uncomfortable. And the most I could get out of it was um, out of these conversations was to talk about how beautiful she was. And in fact, we're not on video, but I'm showing this to you now, Victoria. I have her photo on my desk. Um, Every single day I look at it because it's something that motivates me. It's something that made me think about these questions without even realizing that she was that motivating factor for me, that force that that got me into your classroom, that got me into other classrooms where, where I started asking those questions without even seeking the answers necessarily. Just having the opportunity to ask the questions meant a whole lot to me because I grew up in a, in a country and in an environment that was still very uncomfortable asking questions. And the reason for that discomfort was the fact that Nina, along with with many other members of what we call, quote unquote, intelligentsia of the the Soviet era, um, her husband, Eric Bedia, was was one of the leading editors, uh, editor in chief of a leading newspaper called the Communist Newspaper um, in the Soviet Union, and he ran the the Georgian office. So he was at one point on good terms with the likes of Joseph Stalin and, of course, Beria, and Laverenti Beria was the head of the NKVD that later became KGB, which then after that became the FSB, which we are living through right now. Um, But um, he fell out with with Beria because um, essentially to make a very long story short for those who are interested, um, I hope that they will pick up a copy of the book to read about it. But essentially he went against the party line. Um, When he got arrested after he went against the party line, um, then Nina spoke up. And and when Nina spoke up as a woman, and she sort of gave a voice, not only to, to other compatriots of hers who felt very much the same way about finding a lot of these policies extremely problematic. Now we're talking 20s and 30s. So 
we don't yet know about the gulags, right? We, we don't yet know about 1937 because 1937 hasn't happened yet. But there are problematic aspects of the Soviet regime under Stalin. And, and as, an, as an historian, I'm sure you will appreciate this, that they are in a way seeing that they are themselves part of that machine. And they are in some way also responsible because they're playing a part in it. But she now, just like her husband, wanted to essentially rid herself of, of these problematics. And she wanted to go against the, against the system, not realizing at the time that going against the system was essentially suicide. And in, in her case, unfortunately, not only was it professional suicide, but also it was an actual physical execution. Uh, because when she dared to speak against the regime, when she dared to personally approach Beria in his own office and told him everything that she, she thought about him and about his cronies. Um, the, the answer that she got was that essentially he was first going to cut her tongue out uh, because she talked too much, he said. And the next level was that, um, that she, she was raped by Beria, um, allegedly, but we, we have enough evidence to, to know that that was what happened. Um, and ultimately, he ordered her execution personally. So you can only imagine that growing up with this story, even though I only heard, heard bits and pieces of it in very harsh tones, even in the 90s, when seemingly that era was over, the legacy was still very much alive. So when I grew up with that and knowing that she was a woman who dared to stand up against the regime and against the atrocities of the regime without her even realizing what the atrocities were, because frankly, this is in 1937. And in 1937, we don't yet know what's happening in the country, the great purges and all the rest of it. So that was weighing on me for a very, very long time. And through wanting to learn about her through wanting to find her photographs. Even this is one of the very few photos that we have because, and it kills me to say this, but we, my family had to get rid of her photos because it was dangerous for us to, to own her belongings that we inherited bits and pieces. My aunt has certain things. The rest of my family has certain things as well. But at the end of the day, we had to shed those legacies because it was much too dangerous. And that sort of subconscious baggage was something that I grew up with. And I think it was inevitable that either I would ignore it and never go into a history classroom. And that would have been tragic for me because I wouldn't have met you and, and a few other fantastic scholars that became my mentors. Um, or instead of ignoring it, I could actually address it and process it and, and look it in the eye and say, okay, this is my history and I am going to try to learn what I can about it and find what I can, bearing in mind that, of course, a lot of it no longer exists. So tell us about your childhood, um, your, your birth, your relocation, um, and then your kind of re relocation within the relocation. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you're you, you, you talk about nationalism in the title, um, which seems to be a, a fascinating topic just for you personally. Sure. Um, so I grew up in what was then in the 80s, um, still the Soviet Union. I grew up in 
sort of a very iconic year for all sorts of reasons, 1984. <laughs> and I have a few really cool t-shirts as a result. Um, unfortunately, not because of my birthday. It just sort of coincided with that. Um, but um, I grew up in 1984, which was, an, which was a very interesting time historically for the Soviet Union because it was sort of Gorbachev was about to come in and a lot was about to change. And even before the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was that air of hope, great hope, vis-a-vis um, -vis the West, but also domestically, internally. Um, suddenly there was Glasnost, there was Perestroika. Yes, it was, of course, very problematic, but that air of we can speak our minds and not worry that tomorrow something similar to what happened to Nina could happen to us, that was starting to become a thing of the past. It was starting to become history. So being born into that climate uh, was was fascinating in hindsight because um, I grew up with a lot of freedoms that unfortunately, just seeing what we're seeing in the news today and hearing what we're hearing from our friends in the region, that freedom is very much being taken away from, from people once again. There was freedom of press. Yes, of course, there was the Pravda newspaper, which ironically meant truth, but there was very little truth in it. Um, but nevertheless, born into that historical um, chapter, I think was what made me feel very free and also made me feel that I had opportunities and there really wasn't much one couldn't do if you worked hard and you had your goals set on specific um, missions and again, sort of the goals that you had for yourself. Nothing was as impossible as it could have been just 10 years earlier. A few years after I was born, the Soviet Union collapsed. I swear it was not my fault. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. I was only six, seven years old. Um, but what came with that was actually another another legacy that I continue to wrestle with vis-a-vis um, -vis history in particular as a, as a student of history. Um, I went to school one day and we were uh, reading using textbooks that had um, drawings of, um, of Lenin and Stalin. And then the very next day, it literally felt like it was the very next day, very sporadically. We went, we went into the classroom and the same teacher took the textbook away from us and said, everything I taught you in this classroom was a lie. And I had to tell you that this was the truth because that was my job, because I was told by the government that that's what I should be teaching you. But please know this was not true. Now, as a teacher yourself, I'm sure you will understand how difficult that must have been for them and also the responsibility because how can I then as a as a six seven year old child trust anything else that comes out of my teacher's mouth because she just told me yesterday that everything she taught me last year was not true so that started to weigh on me without even realizing at the time. So I think that was one of the reasons why I became interested in studying the Soviet history even more so than post-Soviet because I wanted to understand in the classroom, in sort of the 2000s, that what was actually true. And perhaps there was something that wasn't a lie, because I found it very difficult to understand that how could everything that these teachers taught me could be a lie? How could that be true? Um, so then I started looking for um, certain truths here and there and trying to understand what's a lie and what's true. And maybe there's also something in between. And perhaps there are different versions of truths. That was something I, I realized very early on that sometimes there are many truths to some. 
Um, and with that sort of baggage, I then went into the post-Soviet era, um, at which point um, the civil war in Georgia kicked off. It was a very difficult time for us. Other than the fact that there was an actual war outside our windows, we lost everything from um, hot water to heating to you couldn't buy sugar one day, but then the next day you couldn't buy flour and, and you had to therefore save sugar for next week just in case it disappeared from the shelves again. It was a nightmare. I was a child and I was blessed with fantastic parents who tried to make light of it for me, but it, in hindsight, I think it took a toll on me because we went from living like the elite to living like absolute paupers and we had absolutely nothing because nobody else had anything. And that didn't make me very flexible. I think that the good thing is on the upside, I learned to, to deal with it when I have more and I learned to deal with it when I have much less and sort of try to make my way and navigate my way through it and made me very malleable and very nimble. But on the other hand, the, the, the difficulty of it was that my father, um, who was a very well-known architect already at the time, he was working for Intourist. And for those listeners of ours, Intourist was um, essentially working for the government. It was part of the government and he was the architect in chief for Intourist. So he would be building various buildings, but under the auspices of the the Soviet apparat on the one hand, but then on the other hand, because Intourist was essentially for tourists who were coming to the Soviet Union, he got a chance to work with a lot of foreigners, a lot of Americans, a lot of Europeans, and his horizons were broadened um, very, very early on. And he had access to music and goods that, um, many Soviets at the time perhaps didn't, it wasn't about money. It was sort of who you knew. Right. And, um, because all of that collapsed, my, my dad essentially went from being the architect in chief at interest to having nothing, having no job. Um, we were barely making our, um, ends meet and he needed to feed his family. So what did we do? Like many Georgians at the time, we went next door. We went to Russia. And Russia was also struggling at the time, of course. Um, and there was the putsch. And obviously, 1993 was a very complicated year. And that was precisely when we moved there. And um, moving to Moscow from Tbilisi didn't feel problematic because we were still very much living that sort of um, Soviet mentality. So we still considered each other to be neighbors. Um, we were breaking bread the day before, so it didn't feel odd that somehow we were now um, immigrants. We didn't feel like immigrants at all. My father did find um, a job very fast. Um, he would eventually become the um, architect in chief of, um, well, Manezhna Ploshit, which is essentially everything that is happening below, and I'm talking four stories below the Red Square. So there's a massive um, shopping mall, and there's just a, a lot going on under the Red Square that very few people realize unless they go there. And that was built in time for Moscow's 850th anniversary, which happened in 1997. And my dad was essentially given an impossible job to do all of that work as the, the architect in chief and also the designer to do it all within a year or two, which was crazy, but he did it. And 
it it worked out perfectly because now he had a job and and I was um, in school. My parents um, very strategically, and, and I'm so glad they did. Instead of sending me to a Russian school, they immediately, from second grade onwards in Moscow, they sent me to an American school. And I started learning English as sort of my native language. So I spoke Georgian at home. I would only really speak Russian in the store if I needed to buy bread or a magazine. But the rest of the time I was speaking English. So I was surrounded by a lot of foreigners. A lot of the students in my classroom were were children of parents who were working at various embassies. So English and America and sort of the American system, and I, I and here I mean also values, a lot of the values were very much what brought us together and united us. So for me to, after all of that, after living in Moscow as a, as a Georgian, uh, but at an American school for about eight years, it made absolute sense that I would then make the United States my next stop. It was natural. And um, in the early 2000s, I did, in fact, come to the U.S. Um, just for a few months on a B1B2 visa, and I ended up staying, and I made it my home. I became an American citizen, um, and the, the rest became history, but history that I wanted to still honor. And I think one of the ways that I could learn about my country's history, not just Georgia's, but also that of the Soviet Union, was because I never really got to learn anything about it. Uh, part of it was because I went to an American school and the focus was not the Soviet Union, but also because I was in it. So I found it problematic. I did not want to be part of the Soviet anything really at the time because I felt that it stifled me. Um, I knew the negatives, not just the positives of what that regime and that era meant to a lot of my family members, including once again, Nina. So I was just shutting it out until I got to Columbia University as a bachelor student. And even though I enrolled into Columbia to study psychology, I took so many um, Russian regional classes and Soviet classes that my advisor told me that, you know, it looks like you're going to end up with a double major. So if you do end up getting um, a master's degree, you should probably go to the Harriman Institute because your heart is very clearly in it, even if you don't realize it yourself. So that's sort of my my story in a nutshell. Um, so two, two questions. One um, is about Georgia. Yes. Um, and um, I want to get to Stalin, obviously, and Putin, because that's a big part of the book. But, um, you know, it strikes me that so many um, famous people have come from Georgia, um, yes. yet been called Russians. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, uh, you know, we look at um, Baryshnikov, sure. um, uh, uh, Balanchine, Stalin. Um, and, um, and it struck me while I was reading your book also, um, as Stalin kind of representing the Russian and the, and particularly in the war. And then there was Hitler who was really Austrian, right? Um, but that's not a, you know, that's only a small part of, of your book, the compare the, 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 any comparison or thought of Hitler, but, um, what, so I'm curious, what is it about Georgia that has that 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 a makes these these people, and b, is it the U.S. mind or is it the Soviet Russian mind that makes these men Russian? Mm. Someone's memory. 
it's something that I used to get very upset about because um, even so not so much in Russia, because obviously in Russia, I, it was very clear that with my name, Tinatan Japarizi, I was very clearly Georgian. But as soon as I left Russia and when I moved to the United States, a lot of people before 2008, before the, the Russia-Georgia war, most people would say, oh, you're Georgian. Well, you're Russian. And they would introduce me as their Russian friend. And there, there was nothing wrong with being Russian. I have some wonderful ethnically Russian Russian friends. Um, I just didn't feel that it was accurate. And I found it problematic. And the fact that I was then also studying Russia at school made it even more problematic because people said, well, you must definitely be Russian then because there's just too many coincidences otherwise of you studying Russia and you speaking fluent Russian and you lived in Russia. So clearly you are Russian. And I had to explain to them very patiently that Georgia and Russia are not one and the same. Um, unfortunately, the way that the Western world started to, to see that difference beyond academia and, and, and scholars and, and those who are plugged into the culture um, was through the 2008 war. Uh, because it was very clear that once Russia invaded Georgia, that Russia did not invade Russia. And then made it easier. It opened up a lot of conversations. That's when people realized that actually the Georgian Orthodox Church is different from the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, the Georgian language it could not be more different from any other Slavic language because it is not a Slavic language. The script is completely different. So um, a lot of these details we started talking about after very, very tragic events, which is something, and I apologize, I digress, but something we're seeing with Ukraine because a lot of people... Up until, well, I would say to a certain degree, um, up until 2014 with, with annexation of Crimea, um, Eastern Ukraine, that entire war that kicked off in 2014, but especially now, post-2022, I think we're going to hear very different conversations about Russian and Ukrainian are not the same language. It is not the same culture. Yes, there is that Slavic unifying factor that Georgia and Russia don't have. Uh, but um, very few people will then say, oh, so-and-so is Ukrainian, therefore they are Russian. It, the only silver lining that I'm seeing, or at least one of the very few, other than the fact that I think Ukraine has brought the, the world together, the free world together, and many countries that were not necessarily on the same page prior, I think they're speaking in unison vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Um, we're also going to see that there, there will be a very distinguishing sort of factor that is explicit that Russia is not Ukraine and vice versa. Um, and now we go back to your question, what makes Georgia, Georgia, that we produce the likes of Balanchine on the one hand, someone that we're immensely proud of, but then we also produce someone like Joseph Stalin that some are frighteningly proud of to this day. Um, others are ashamed to admit that he was Georgian. And it's something that I, I had to navigate while I was writing the book, because um, what I found very interesting was that um, to simplify this um, just for a moment, a lot of people, um, when I talk to them in Georgia about Stalin, will tell me that Stalin was wonderful. He went to the seminary. He was a good religious boy. He wrote wonderful poems, loved his mother. But then he went to Russia and became this monster. Um, I've heard Russians as well uh, tell me the same thing, and they'll, but vice versa. So they won't say that he was wonderful before he came to Russia. They'll say that some of the great 
things that we know about Stalin, including the Great Patriotic War that Russia refers to as the the Great Patriotic War, which is essentially the Second World War. Um, A lot of these glorifying factors that that Russia and the world um, at times um, refer to in conversations when they talk about Stalin, that was all because he came to Russia, which then became the Soviet Union. But anything that anyone doesn't like about Stalin personally, we'll talk to the Georgians about that because he was Georgian and it's probably their fault. Um, so we, we continue to, to wrestle with that. And with Balanchine, it's a lot easier. And of course, with the likes of Joseph Stalin, it's very, very hard. I think that because Georgia never considered itself part of Russia, Although it was also not part of the West because we are much too far away from it. We're sort of right next to, to Turkey. So we are at the crossroads, sort of the gates between East and West in many ways. Although one could argue we're a little bit more East than, than West geographically. In terms of some of our values, I think progressively more so we are becoming, it's easier for us to Westernize than it would be for us to Easternize. Um, and that perhaps speaks a little bit about um, our mentality. Um, I think our mentality is somewhat different from uh, what one would call a Soviet mentality. And I'm surprised and also very happy that it survived that occupation and it survived that history 70 years because we were able to hang on to our um, Christian Orthodox faith. We were able to hang on to our Georgianness and did not become russified. Yes, we were under the Soviet rule, but we never became russified even though Georgians spoke fantastic Russian, you know, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it did not impact our identity. Mm, interesting. Really interesting. Um well, let's go um to the kind of really um fa- uh, uh, uh to me fascinating part of um your book which is right now. Um, and, um, the way you speak a lot about the way in which, um, Stalin is memorialized, um, through museums, through, um, various, um, sites constructed by, um, government and propaganda agencies, um, how he's remembered, how you remember him, how the millennials remember him. Um, but what's really important for right now is how Putin wants us to remember him and how Putin wants to mold himself on that memory. So um, can you speak about that as you write it in the book and also um, if you can bring us into the present? Um, what's very interesting, Victoria, is that had I written the book now, post-Ukraine war, I think I would have had slightly different primary material to to play with. Um, Here, my primary sources, um, and even the secondary sources, they were a little bit more subtle. What shocked many, including myself, was the fact that Vladimir Putin himself and the Putin regime more broadly stopped pretending to be subtle about any of this. Um, Once again, I come back to your craft as an historian that I think you were probably shocked when you heard that revisionist history lesson that Vladimir Putin gave us right before he announced that he was now going to invade Ukraine. And 
I having taken so many classes on on Ukraine's history as well at at Columbia, I was completely blown away. I was gobsmacked as I was watching TV because had I not known, had I not studied history, I could have very easily fallen into that trap. And I think that was another sobering reminder that it is so important, even if one's goal is not to become a a historian, but you just need to know your history and you need to know it well, because it is very dangerous otherwise to become a prey to this weapon um, or weaponized history that, that we are seeing as part of Vladimir Putin's, but also other leaders' efforts and policies, both domestically as well as in terms of their foreign policy. Um, I think the the Stalin... I, yes. Can I, can I interrupt you for just one Please. second? Um, just um, because people may be listening to this who didn't hear the speech. Can yes. you tell us what... Can you tell us Putin's version of, of Ukrainian history? Uh, well, the, the one thing I will tell everyone who is listening, and I would urge them to actually, just out of curiosity spend 30 to 40 minutes watching that speech. It is available in English. You can read it. You can watch it because it is interesting. Um, One of my biggest takeaways, and I just sat there and I chuckled to myself and I thought, no, this is not funny. I should be crying right now because this is scary. Um, He called Ukraine, you know, like the, the, the subway stations, the metro in Russia, for example, is called Metropolitan, Metropolitan, Imeni Lenina. So named after Lenin because he was the architect of the the Metropolitan, for example, right? So although it was really Stalin. um, Here, Putin came out and said that Ukraine is not a sovereign country. It is not really a sovereign nation. It is and has always been part of Russia. And it is therefore Ukraina imeni Lenina. So Ukraine created by the architect Lenin, um, you know, artificially, that's what's he, what, what he's implying is that it was sort of artificially created by Lenin and Ukraine should somehow be grateful to the Soviets. Instead of trying to shed the Soviet occupation, they should be grateful that they would not be on the map otherwise. That was very scary. But what was even scarier was the fact that after I chuckled to myself when I was watching his speech, then I went online and I just, I was very curious. I started reading people's reactions on social media before social media started getting banned in Russia when people were still able to access it in Russia. Um, The amount of people that actually bought into it, that frightened me because he was so believable and it was so credible. His, his body language and the arguments that he thought he was using as evidence that to me was absolutely the most frightening aspect of it. Not so much what he said, but the fact that that weapon of history, the way he weaponized history and completely not just re- revisionism would have been okay to use as a term a couple of years ago. But I think in 2022, even the word revisionism is, is much too soft and it doesn't even tell you half of what's, what, what, what the, the Russian, the, the Kremlin is, is doing. Um, they are essentially now outright using history as a weapon and history that suits and justifies a given policy on a given day. And that was something that I alluded to, but in a subtler way in my book, because we were seeing um, a lot of those efforts, a lot of those um, nuances that were still very subtle to, to the point where 
I, as someone who was writing a book that is not really a history book, but has those elements, had to do my due diligence as, as your student and provide enough evidence so that I wouldn't just say, you know, this is what I think. No. What I think, I can discuss that um, over dinner with my friends, and that's all very nice. But if I'm writing it in a book, I need to provide enough evidence to show that we are not just seeing Putin in this mood. This is what he's saying. These are the policies, and this is how we interpret these policies. I had to do a lot of work to show that evidence. Now, he would have made my job a lot easier because I wouldn't even need to to seek out sort of secondary evidence. It's It's all there. He said everything that we were trying to explain and read between the lines. There's no reading between the lines. And I think that is what changed to me pre-2022 and after 2022 in terms of these sorts of um, pieces of evidence. Um, He was not glorifying Stalin explicitly over the years. Um, Vladimir Putin was glorifying the Great Patriotic War. And then he would remind us that the Soviet Union won the war the Soviet Union won the war against Nazi Germany and the evil of Nazism for the world, for the free world. Um, And then Stalin happened to be the architect of that. And then he would sort of mention Stalin, but he would never really explicitly say Stalin was a great guy. He was very careful, very, very careful. And he would never do that because he knew that that was going to push the envelope a little too far and people were not ready to digest it. And it would come back to haunt him. And he was not ready for that ricochet effect. We're not seeing that today. I think today he is using any and all tools that are disposable, some that are not there. They will artificially create them, design them, uh, rethink them, revise them, because things are very, very bad right now. Um, Russia, no matter what anyone says, was not expecting this sort of fight I think Vladimir Putin was expecting Crimea 2.0. You go in, they they meet you with flags and flowers and open arms. Um, Ukraine thanks uh, Russia for rescuing them and happy ending, Hollywood. That did not happen. And I think now history will become even more crucial. And I think this is the time that reminds us that we do need to invest in in our education. We need to invest in history lessons, not just at college level, but schools, primary schools, high schools, because it's very dangerous otherwise. It's it's a weapon. It has been weaponized and we're seeing it now. And it's not just a few of us that believe in it. I think a lot of people need to understand that we need to be prepared and we need that, you know, that PPE and that PPE is going to to be knowledge and facts, and 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 we are in dire need. Um, so um, it, it seemed to me um, that I think that's really interesting about how Putin has used Stalin, and that's a really nice clarification. Um, and um, uh, it's it's a wonderful um, addition to what's in the book, and that the discussion that's in the book. Um, one of the things that strikes me, well, two things when I think about history. Um, uh, and it seems that Putin might have forgotten his history lessons um, in several ways. Um, one is that the Ukrainians were the shock troops mm-hmm. <laughs> in World War II. Um, they are, you know, they they were known as, as excellent fighters. Um, 
two is that um, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which we both know, um, uh, proclaimed truth and for better or for worse, although truth was used as propaganda, did have did did state the facts mm-hmm. um, in many in in many instances, and did get through. Yes. Um, do you think he has forgotten this? <laughs> do you think um, he believes that, like um, kind of Goebbels or? Um, or or Stalin, perhaps, certainly not Khrushchev, that news isn't going to get through? I mean, in today's age, what, what, what do you think is going on there? I don't know if he's forgotten, but I think he wants to think that he has absolute and total control, which many are seeing that he may not have as much of control over his people. That grip, that tight grip that he was very proud of, that many were afraid of. Um, Yes, it's still there, but it's not as tight as it was. And um, he, the the reason, something that I was thinking about for a very long time as a student, I remember um, when I was writing my thesis, I consulted with you many times. Um, I was obsessed with the, the Russian internet space. And I was obsessed with the fact that um, I was seeing just on an instinctive level, not because I had any great intelligence that anybody was giving me, but instinctively I was seeing that rollback happened with the internet first with technology. And there were very clear signals that Russia was trying, not only because Russia was meeting actively with China, with Russian leadership, with Chinese leadership, but also because we were seeing that a lot of the great um, internet firewall in China was very attractive to Vladimir Putin. And he was trying to borrow some of that model. Now, not all of it because he is not naive. China has never really had a different internet because it was designed as the Great Firewall, whereas Russia had a very free internet and it went from being ultra free to suddenly he was trying to to execute his clampdown. And it, it turned out to be a lot harder than just thinking back in the day in the Cold War days, oh, well, if we just shut them out, you know, out of the system and we don't give them the airwaves that most people won't be able to hear them, well, we're dealing with something else technologically today. He has been spending a lot of time and, and money on trying to roll back some of those freedoms pertaining to the internet. Not so much because it's the internet, because he still understands that it is a source of information. It is today's RFERL. The young people that need their news, they don't watch TV. They certainly don't listen to radio anymore. Those young sort of millennials in Russia go online, go on the internet. So if he cuts them off, ideally, then they're not going to be able to get their news. And then the media dies because the social media is dead. But unfortunately for Vladimir Putin, that turned out to be a lot harder. And the um, sort of restructuring the architecture, just just pure architecture of what makes the internet tick, was so much harder than he could have imagined. So just cutting Russia off was not going to be as easy as, as he mm-hmm. may have thought it could have been. However, now we're seeing that, okay, well, the, the global internet, cutting Russia off of the global internet, just unplugging it, is not something that he can do 
in his bedroom and just unplug it out of the wall and boom, Russia is cut off. But trying to then um, unplug individual outlets one by one, just one cable at a time, metaphorically speaking, that is something that he is now going to try. Not only is he going to try it, he's already doing it. He started with TV Rain, which is my personal, for, for me, that was like um, literally using losing oxygen because I could no longer access news from Russia. I, I have great respect for the likes of the BBC, uh, but at the same time, I understood the value of going directly to the source and learning what's happening in Russia from Russian media outlet that I trusted from those on the ground who do their work and do it very, very well. The few journalists that, that are doing it fantastically, he cut them off. Then he cut off Echo of Moscow, which is a radio station that I would listen to every night. Reminds me of my father when he used to listen to VOA or, um, or Radio Liberty when I was little. I was doing the same thing. Every night I would go to bed over the past couple months and listen to Russian radio. He cut them off as well. So now I can't physically could not open their website. At first, I didn't know what happened. It just would not refresh. And gradually, gradually, he started unplugging first us on what he considers to be the collective West. So now we have no access to their information, which is interesting, right? So instead of unplugging them first, he unplugged us. We have no access. Now the Russian people are going to be more and more afraid and there's self-censorship. So are they going to tell Tinitin and Victoria what's happening on the ground over the phone? Because no, they're not, they're afraid. So now we are in this informational vacuum. So we have no access to information. Then the next step for him was to cut off his population from not just the news, but us. And now he's cut them off from us and independent media. They have no access to, to those sources either. And now on the 14th of March, Russia, Roskomnadzor, which is essentially the, the watchdog for information in Russia, Russian government's watchdog, they are now going to cut off Instagram, which also means because it's Meta-owned Facebook and WhatsApp. So people are panicking. Now he's saying, look, why do you need Instagram? We have VK, Vkontakte, which is the, the Russian equivalent of Facebook. So use our platforms. It's ours. Just like he, you know, when once McDonald's said they're getting out of Russia, he said, well, it's okay. We have our, our own cutlets and then we have our own bread and then we'll have a wonderful dinner on our own sort of dime and our own food and from our own um, gardens. What he is doing is he's sort of putting Russia in this isolation where it's turning into an island and it's now going to be an island that has no access to it. There's no inflow flowing out or flowing in of information. And that scares me, Victoria, because I wish my dad were still around. I lost him last year, but I would love to talk to him because he lived through the heyday of the communist regime and he lived through the Cold War and he was the child of VOA and RFERL. And I'm wondering, because based on the conversations I have had with him, I don't think it was quite that bad at the time, honestly, because for his generation, not Nina's generation, that was brutal. But his generation in the, the 60s, the 70s, um, the 80s, it was different. You, you couldn't travel easily, but you still had access. Um, and that 
is not just roll back. And when people say we're going back to the Soviet Union, my fear is that we're going to the worst part of the Soviet Union, the worst mm. chapter of the Soviet Union, because there was a Soviet Union that still had access. And I'm afraid that at least Vladimir Putin will try to annihilate all access to information. And anyone who tries to do that, they are going to today, they're going to get fined. Tomorrow, they will get arrested. And the day after tomorrow, I don't even want to think about it. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, in 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 one sense, if you think about George Kennan and the containment theory, mm-hmm. um, this is a recipe for blowing up, yes. right? Um, yes. Except that as we saw with, you know, Kennan, who um, put forth the containment theory in um, the 19, in 1947-48 um, yes. with the long telegram and the X article, um, then there were lots of um, people who disagreed with him and it took a really long time <laughs> right, for Kennan to be right. Exactly. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, so, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's actually very um, uh, inspiring that he's closing everybody off um, because it didn't work the last time. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, um, it, these things take thus a long time and a lot of people will be hurt yes. and killed. Um, so it's, um, it's really, really, really something, um, that you, that you bring to this, uh, to this story. Um, I was fascinated by the way you looked at museums, um, and, um, and also textbooks, Mm-hmm. Um, you've spoken a bit about um, why textbooks would be so important to you mm-hmm. um, from your own personal experience. Can you talk about the recurring trope of museums and what brought you there? Um, so initially, the, the reason I even started thinking about this topic, it was a class assignment. Um, Alexander Cooley, whom we, whom we both know very well, who was the director of the Harriman Institute while I was a student at the Harriman, um, for his class, Soviet Legacies, uh, one of the assignments that he gave us was to take three themes from the various themes. Every week had a theme of its own and to essentially just take three themes that we wanted and then to come up with a one-page memo based on those three themes as a unifying factor. And I chose Stalin because he was one of the themes. Um, I chose nostalgia and I chose uh, and uh, also chose uh, nationalism. And obviously nationalism and nostalgia and also Stalin are part of the title of this book. So um, we really do go way, way back in terms of uh, my class paper playing such a vital role in in even thinking about some of these um, topics that I was able to delve into. Um, The museum was something that I looked at very briefly in the one pager for, for the memo. And essentially what I looked at was not so much the museum, but I had just been to Gori, Stalin's birthplace um, outside of, of Tbilisi in Georgia, um, where very close to his museum, they've since taken it down. And I will send you a photo because I think you will be fascinated. There was a supermarket right next to the museum and in order to make sure that we don't upset comrade stalin too much by having this sort of westernized supermarket next to him uh, we're going to put his big poster all over the supermarket (laughs) so it was a big poster big picture of stalin 
at the very entrance to a very, very westernized supermarket in Gori next to the Stalin Museum. And and I was so amused by it that I took a photo and I made that photo essentially my exhibit for the one-page memo. Um, then the one-page memo became an entire term paper because Alexander Cooley said, well, why don't you write a class paper for, for the entire semester based on this since you appear to be very interested in the topic. So just run with it. And then I started writing about the museum, although I had only really been to the museum very briefly. So I could not really write about the museum. So I applied for a grant, for a PepsiCo grant that very winter. And the day he graded my paper, I was waiting for him at the atrium on the 12th floor, um, waiting to him for him to give me my grade with the notes on my paper. And then I was running to the airport to go to Georgia. So I got the grant, I went to Georgia, I went to the museum and that museum, at the time there was obviously no talk of writing a book. Um, At that point I was just doing it for myself. I was very interested, not only in the fact that we still have Stalin's museum, so we never had de-Stalinization to begin with, let alone completed it. Um, I wanted to know how, if at all, did this museum and the exhibitions that the museum was showing to various tourists as well as Georgian natives different every time a new leadership came in. So unlike Russia, that has not had too many different leaders since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, Georgia has had quite a few. Um, so in that respect, we have a more democratic system, one could one could say. Um, and I really, really wanted to see between um, Shevardnadze, um, followed by um, Mikhail Saakashvili, then Mikhail Saakashvili leaves, and then the opposition party, the Georgian Dream, comes in. Did the museum and the exhibits change? And that was my research question, without realizing that that was my research question at the time. And I became very friendly with the staff that had been there since, essentially since the museum was built, decades ago. They, they know it inside out, but they've also seen it inside out and they've seen the politics of it. And I became very friendly with them and they felt very comfortable. Even after I told them that I was writing the book, I asked them to be on record for some of the quotes. They felt comfortable to sort of tell me, well, this is what happened under this one leader. And then the other leader came in and then they said, well, actually remove this wall take the wall down to the basement. Let's get the other wall up. One example I can give you is what they called the gulag room. Now, for a very long time, there was no mention of the gulag in the Stalin Museum. Like, it never happened. Um, But then gradually, when the new leaders started coming in, especially after the 2008 war, we needed to show the world that Georgia had been occupied by the Soviet Union and what better way to show it than to start talking about these uncomfortable topics such as the gulag. So then they created a very small wall designated for the gulag and it kept getting bigger, then smaller, then bigger again. So that's just one of my exhibits within an exhibit. And I started looking at various museums throughout Georgia and also in Russia pertaining not just to Stalin, but to that period. And I really wanted to see how these exhibits fluctuate, much like how the textbooks also fluctuate in terms of the narratives that they are setting forth um, for sort of public consumption. Um, So um, two questions. Um, uh, First, um, 
if I were C.D. Jackson, um, uh, propaganda minister for Eisenhower, and I were going to put something into balloons, yes, um, I think I would drop cell phones with SIM cards on the on Russia <laughs> and VPNs, built-in right. VPNs, VPNs, yes, <laughs> VPNs. Um, if that, if I were C.D. Jackson, um, it might, it might hit a few people in the head, but that's, you know, that's the idea. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's an information, is it an information war that will win this? Um, you know, what would you do if you were C.D. Jackson? Oh, I swear I'm not just saying this because you brought it up, but just yesterday, because I knew that you and I were going to talk today. I was thinking about the same thing just last night. I was wondering what could go inside those uh, those um, balloons because we had talked about the balloons so much, but it, it felt like something esoteric. We were talking about almost about a fairy tale because it was so long ago. We thought, when would this ever happen again? Well, look at us now. Don't we wish that we had someone like C.D. Jackson? Um, but um, I was wondering what could you put inside these balloons? And that's the thing because... You can't hit, and I'm trying to sort of use that metaphor, you can't hit every Russian with a phone on their heads and expect them to to use it for the greater good. Um, because there, there's that fear that once you give them the gadget, there's a way that they'll use it for the greater good, but then there's also the reverse, the, the flip side of the coin. That's what concerns me, and that's why total access to information, very open internet, as much as I am very sort of democratically leaning at heart in terms of democracy being at least the best solution we have because we don't have a better alternative. When we come up with a better alternative, fantastic, great. I'm all for hearing about it. But so far, I think for many countries, perhaps not all, we've seen that freedom and access to information can be better than lack thereof. However, here, when it comes to technology, when it comes to free internet, free access, it's it then turns into this sort of um, football match that has no rules. Because then who is going to say this is right and that is wrong? So having a very open internet also is something that I find slightly problematic. Um, because of the ways that it can be misused and perhaps even abused. Um, So I don't know if necessarily hitting them with phones is is a great option. Um, I heard just today, and I'm sure you've heard about it as well, that there's this, um, I believe it's it's a startup that is um, essentially allowing people to call Russian cell phones and send messages to, to Russian cell phones. Um, from other parts of the world, such as the United States. And I've been bombarded with with these links on my LinkedIn, for example. And I'm thinking, okay, I I get it. I I appreciate the effort, but will that work? Will that work? Will putting something that will grant access to free flow of information in that metaphorical balloon be the answer? I think that change has to come not only from within, but also from bottom up grassroots level. And change has been implemented in Russia, at least, uh, through the vertical of power, top down, 
for such a long time that it's become part of the culture for better or worse. That's why it's very easy to get angry at the Russian people who are voting for Vladimir Putin. But having lived there, having understood that mentality for a long time, I understand, I disagree with it, but I understand why they vote for, voted for him. This is different Putin we're seeing, but the Putin that was giving them a piece of bread and a little bit of this and that and the other for a long time, and they felt that suddenly they had something stable. It's an illusion of stability, of course, but they bought into it. I can see why they voted for him. I really can. Do I agree? Absolutely not. Now, how do you convince those people that voted for him pre-2022 to not vote for him in 2024 is the answer. And I think just one gadget will not fix it. I think we need to think about changing the culture, the mentality, and it has to happen sort of ground up because even if we hit them with the phones, it's still both metaphorically and, and also literally coming from top down. And they're used to this top-down, you know, pressure, this actual heavy, heavy pressure. And I don't know if they'll respond to it the way that we would expect them to back in the day with C.D. Jackson and other, other great minds that thought of the balloons. I could be wrong, but you know, I can promise you that I will spend another few nights thinking about it. And if I come up with something, I will let you know. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating because the idea of calling people um, is very much like the letter writing campaign exactly um, that that um, that the government put in, where you'd have um, people who were um, Russian mm-hmm. writing, uh, calling people in Russia, right? Just the exactly. way there was the letter writing campaign to kill off communism in Italy with exactly. the with the letters to from Italian Americans back home to tell people to not to vote for those evil communists. Exactly. Um, so that's fascinating. That that's very clever. Um, you know, coming to the Cold War, um, I've had these very disturbing um, questions like, "Is this a new Cold War?" Um, which <laughs> no. <laughs> Have you turned on your television set? Um, You know, Fukuyama, the end of the end of history, right? Um, And one of the things that strikes me is that unlike Hitler in World War, everybody's, well, it's like Hitler. Well, unlike Hitler in World War II, um, and certainly unlike the Cold War, I can't identify an ideology here. Um, so, you know, Hitler agree with him, don't agree with him. There had an, I, an, a concept of world cleansing that was backed by his version of science and eugenics and mm-hmm. um, communism versus capitalism and the Cold War and whatever other um, dichotomies you wanted to put into it. So what happens here without ideology? D- does Putin reach for something? Um, is it kind of like the the Middle Ages? Is it just a is it a power grab? How how does ideology and remembering is it nostalgia as an ideology? I think he may have made a mistake by not even artificially concocting an ideology a few years ago. Because it's very difficult for him to justify what he's doing without having an ideology. Problematic or not, it's an ideology. Some will buy into it. Others will not. 
they may in hindsight say I was stupid to buy into it. But nevertheless, at that very moment, they are at least buying into an ideology. What are people buying into right now? Today, what we're seeing is that because there's no ideology as such, and he never even pretended to, to, to have one in any of his policies over the past two decades, um, what we're seeing is because there's this void, this void has been filled by a lot of problematics. Um, one, one of the things that he filled this void with, because there is no um, quote unquote ideology for the state, is that um, it's sort of you know, get what you can, milk it, and then run away with it. Don't worry about your legacy. While a lot of the other leaders may have sort of been concerned about, you know, what is the legacy I'm going to leave after myself? While some would argue that Putin does have, is pining to have a legacy that he can leave behind as in, you know, someone who made Russia great again, right? He brought its past glory back to, to Russia. Russia lost its glory. It lost its place at the table, at the negotiating table with the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was um, humiliated because that is what Putin truly, truly believed, that Russia was humiliated in the 90s and was never really reinvited to the negotiating table. Um, now he wants the, the world to um, listen to Russia, to take Russia into account, whether they agree or not, and to con to consider Russia part of the equation somehow. Um, but those around him, many of those around him do not even have that sort of ideology. Um, they got very, very rich under Vladimir Putin's rule. And their goal was not to leave a legacy. Their their goal was frankly to to have the yachts and the the houses and the, the Rolex watches, most of these goodies are, of course, located outside of Russia, which I always find very um, problematic and also amusing because where are they buying the houses and the yachts? Not in Russia, outside of Russia and usually in the countries that they consider enemies of the Russian state. Um, so here, I think, had he had an ideology for the Russian state, it may have been a little bit easier for him to justify these horrible actions to his own voters. Here, he's also scrambling to justify his actions to his own voters, even though right before, literally days before um, the, the war started in Ukraine, before Russia's invasion, um, according to the Levada Polling Center, which is Independent, as independent, you know, as, as independent as one can be in Russia. Uh, but nevertheless, they're at least trying. Um, and and Levada said that he had um, he was enjoying 71% approval ratings. So we're, we're talking right before the invasion, but obviously it's all moving in that direction. Everybody's asking, will he or will he not go all in? But things are bad. Now, we have to take this with a grain of salt, of course, because if somebody knows, the polar knows your name, where you live, your address, your family's address, are you really going to tell them, no, I don't approve of Vladimir Putin's actions and I don't like him? You might not say that. Um, if if it was a just a random call from an unknown number to another unknown number, then you might be more willing to say, I disapprove. So we take it with a grain of salt. And even so, even with that sort of inflation statistically, there is still a support base that he has, not what he had. And I would be very, very surprised if he maintained the same kind of support post-conventional war. 
but there will also be those who, who will support him till the day they die or till the day he dies, whichever happens first. Um, but I'm concerned for him and I shouldn't really be concerned for him because I don't buy into any of the, of the policies of the Putin regime. But if I were his, uh, if I were working for Putin, I would have said, first thing you do is you recreate an ideology. Well, no one did that because Yeltsin was the first to say post-collapse of the Soviet Union that one of the ways away from the communist past and the communist regime was to discard any and all ideologies because the, the very very word ideology was going to signal, oh, this is another sort of communist Soviet regime. And that was sort of shoved aside and Putin never really revisited that question of ideology. He tried to over the past few days by talking about uh, reinstating Russia's greatness and um, getting back its sort of uh, glory that uh, that was Russia's to begin with, that it shouldn't have lost because somebody took it away from, from Russia. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that will stick with a whole lot of people. Some will, of course, say that, oh, we're doing this for, for the greater good and we're doing this for the Russian, ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in Ukraine. We're saving them. Well, you also remember how the Soviet Union saved Poland and saved Finland with um, <laughs> the beginning of the Second World War. So I don't think that the Finns and the Poles felt saved. And I don't think to this day they feel that Russia or the Soviet Union saved them. So... I don't think many Russians in Ukraine even are under the illusion that they're being saved, but there are still some who will buy into it and who will think that this is an ideology, but it's not really an ideology. And that might be one of the ways that Putin loses this hybrid warfare, informational warfare, because there is no ideology at all. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so that's, that's really, that's fascinating. Um, so, um, what else, uh, what, what have we missed? What else, what what would you like to say? Oh my goodness. I, I just reread the book myself two days ago when I got a copy. So I had to start rereading it because I thought, what if somebody asks me something about page 37 and I don't remember what's on that, that anyone would, but, um, it was interesting to, to reread it, um, knowing what we know today post the beginning of the conventional war, Russia's invasion of of Ukraine, because I think I read it somewhat differently to the way I wrote it pre-2022. I wrote the book um, during COVID, so 2020-2021. It was still a very, very different world. Um, It seems crazy to say that now, but it was a very different world. And I think had I known what I know today, would I have written it differently? In many ways, I'm glad I wrote it before because I think some of the arguments that I was trying to make, I was trying to be sober and I was trying not to get carried away with emotions, although parts of the book were very emotional to write. Um, now we are caught um, in, in this emotional turmoil and it is very hard for us to assess a lot of what's happening, uh, which which is something that we will do decades and decades later in hindsight, we'll be able to address and process these events very differently, I think. Uh, but the fact that I had the luxury of not being in war and at war when I wrote the book, and I was able to write about a lot of these events in hindsight, knowing what we know today, in a still a disturbing environment because it was right in the midst of COVID-19's first and second waves. But at the same time, we weren't living 
in a war and at war with with another country. I think today it's not just Ukraine that is at war with Russia. I think Russia is at war with the free world, whatever we mean by that. And we all mean very different things when we say the free world. But many of those who Russia considers to be its allies, some are also trying to stand on the right side of history, which is amazing to me. I, I did not expect that from some countries that are standing on the right side of history. And I'm I'm a little bit more hopeful. But on the other hand, I, I think we can't forget the fact that when the conventional war is over, then the the real problems begin because the damage is beyond just buildings that are being shattered and that are collapsing and that are being bombed and, and lives as tragic as it is that are being taken um, for for what? And at what cost? That That's what kills me. But I think the damage will be very difficult to repair um, for, for both sides. I think Ukraine has a lot of countries at its side. There are some countries that I wish could do more, and I understand why they can't do more, such as the United States, um, for political reasons. I understand that, although I still wish that we could do more. Um, but then there are also those in Russia that... Um, before before we end, I just want to to remind us all, including our listeners, that right now we are focusing on Ukraine, and of course our hearts bleed for Ukraine and the people of Ukraine and the refugees. And let's not forget that there is other refugees, not just Ukrainian refugees, that sometimes sometimes we forget about a lot of other wars that we forget about. Now it's hit closer to home, and and we are all talking about it, but. There have been other wars over the years where I wish we had also talked about the refugees and the victims then as well. But I would urge us to also not forget that many of the Russians who are in Putin's Russia, who do not support Vladimir Putin, who are victims of this regime, my heart bleeds for them because my fear is that although we are standing on the right side of history, there's a fine line between standing for what's right, which means against Vladimir Putin, but the borderline of Russophobia. And I really, really worry, and I hope, and we can really start with academia first, of course, that this does not impact students and scholars and and people who have absolutely nothing to to do with the regime that are actually falling prey to it first, even before we do. They have no way out. They don't have a ticket out of Russia, both metaphorically as well as physically. And I hope that there is hope for them because what worries me is when the war is over in Ukraine, the Ukrainian people have many, many nations that are standing up for them. And I'm so happy about that. But my fear is that the Russian people who are the victims of the Putin regime may not because they have that stigma of they live in Putin's Russia, even if they did not elect him. And I hope that we can start thinking about ways that within ourselves, we can also learn to separate Putin's Russia from the Russian people, Vladimir Putin and the Russian people as a whole and not generalize and also do what we can moving forward, because this will take many decades for them to heal and for them to rebuild both inside and, and on the outside as well. I hope that we can find a way to to learn to separate the two and also give them the benefit of the doubt because there are some wonderful Russian people. For better or worse, they live in Putin's Russia. This is not their choice. They did not elect him. What can we do 
to give them a voice and to allow them to, to get out of that trap because they are trapped. And it's something that keeps me up at night because I think Ukraine has the world or at least the world that's on the right side that's standing up for them. But there are also those who are now going to become the true underdogs. And whatever we can do, I'm, I'm certain we will, but I would urge our listeners to also, when we say Russia, to let's please be specific. When we say Russia did this, no, the Russian government did this. And and even within the government, there's different echelons. There's there's different entities. There's there's different bureaus. We don't just say the United States, something you taught me in the classroom. Don't just say the United States did this. Who? Congress? State Department, even within the State Department, which bureau are we talking? That's something that you taught me in the classroom, and it's something that now I'm trying to teach other people, including my friends in the United States, to say, you know, don't say Russia did this. No, the Russian government. And if you can, do your homework and specify which particular body within the Russian government did A, B, and C. And let's just engage our critical thinking, because that, to me, is how we survive is by thinking, by learning, by educating, and by being very, very responsible, how we consume information and how we spread information so that we don't spread mis or disinformation as a result. That's a wonderful way to end. And, you know, I think about the Cold War and, um, you know, that was one of the tropes that the United States used was the enslaved Russian people. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so it uh, I hope that people remember that that should be a familiar thought. I hope so, too. And thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to me. It really meant a lot. I was your student and now we're having a conversation. And it's even though it's across two different sides of the Atlantic, I'm I'm really happy that you you have done so much for an entire generation of, of scholars. And, and I truly hope that the little bit that I can give back as a result to other people, that we can spread that knowledge and, and the facts, because that's all we've got. Thank you. Thank you.